If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. On episode 145 of Confessions of a Marketer, the marketing of ideas. Hi, it's Mark Reed Edwards. Welcome back to Confessions of a Marketer. Duncan Chapel is in to talk about a range of subjects. We'll get to that in a moment. Coming next time, I have a great chat with the former CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, Kevin Roberts, about Love Marks, a great book and the very definition of the big idea. And coming soon, Catherine Hayes on the future of advertising, Michael Mathias on retail. Plus, in the weeks ahead, Henrik Becker, Xenia Montan, Dave Woodward, Larry Ludwig, and Naira Perez. Lots more in store. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T.org. Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. All right, on to Duncan Chapel. I've spoken to Duncan a number of times over the past few years here on the podcast. He's always brimming with insight, and it's always worth your time to pay attention. This time, we get into the state of influencer relations and his thinking that analyst relations is the marketing of ideas. Plus, we dig into a couple of items from a decade or so ago from his manifesto on analyst relations. And then we take a look at the gyrations in the market and the world with all the uncertainty we face with elections, Brexit, COVID-19, and more. Always fun chatting with Duncan, so let's get to it. Duncan, welcome to Confessions of a Marketer. Great to have you back again. Thank you, Mark. It is always a delight to speak with you. Well, it's been more than a year since our last chat. I was looking at the records. I think it was the fall of 2018. <laughs> the world has changed a bit in that period of time. Oh so what's up in your part of the world and what's the state of influencer relations as we speak? Well, I'd say that the things that have changed the most have been you know, both new opportunities, new obstacles, and then changes in the material world around us. Maybe let me give some high-level comments about that, and maybe we can drill into them a little bit. Firstly, when we think about new opportunities. So we're seeing analysts accelerate the pace at which they are changing their coverage areas. And I think that reflects 
an accelerating pace of change in the in the industry and also a faster cycle time. So the time that it takes organizations to get through their initial funding, to get to market, to get through to M&A, that whole life cycle is accelerating. That means that analysts have to be more alert, that they've got more demands on their time, that they have to be more responsive. And in a way, I think it's a little bit like changes in the apparel industry. There used to be fashion and then there used to be style. You could be a fashion designer that stood away from what was going on in most of the market, have your own distinctive view on what was going on. And that was a very different part of the market for people who were following fashion, who were listening to trends, who were reacting and and anticipating. And I think the analyst industry has had to turn a little bit from being a kind of style business to being a fashion business. And analysts have to be much more responsive. They have to listen to their customers. And something that I see a lot more, even in really crucial foundational activities, like defining categories, creating new categories, anticipating market categories, analysts are getting more and more cautious about doing that. Analysts are using their customers' language more than more. They are listening to their customers and reflecting that back much more than they were previously trying to to set the scene, to anticipate the market, to stand really far ahead of the market. So the, the opportunities are very different. It means incumbent power is lower. It means there's a lot more attention to smaller firms and to startups. And more than anything else, it's companies that understand advocacy management, who are able to generate customer stories and to get customers asking questions of analysts have got much more leverage than they've ever had in the last decades. In a way, I think it's good to just focus a little bit on that point about opportunity because it says so much about kind of market disciplining of the big analyst firms. And it means that analyst firms themselves really have to rethink and reorganize the way that they are behaving. How does that affect the big firms? I think we're seeing a few different responses from the analyst firms. All of them are about operational effectiveness. So in the case of Gartner, which is not just the market leader, but also it is the role model that the whole market tracks. And in scholarly circles, they talk about it as isomorphism. But when Gartner identifies characteristics, potential characteristics for it to display, it hesitates before it adopts them. And then when it does, it moves massively. So if Gartner puts its weight behind something, that's a signal to all of its competitors that serious thought has gone into the viability of this, and it's viable. If Gartner is doing it, it must be viable, so other people do it as well. And that means, firstly, that people underestimate the challenges that Gartner faces. Gartner, of course, can mis-execute. Gartner faces problems. It's had stops and starts. But it also means that the analyst industry really comes down to execution. Because as soon as one of the big firms signals to the market that it's doing something, it's very hard for other firms to not imitate. So that means execution starts to overcome the importance of strategy or even the quality of analysis. Gartner, for example, it's a great analyst firm. It has excellent insight. But the weird thing now is 20 years ago, Gartner was a winner because it had unbelievable insight. But these days, Gartner is a winner because it's got an unbelievable sales force. So success is really all about execution. 
And the only way to succeed is either to improve your execution, aping what Gartner is doing, or you really have to try to refine a different business model, a different value proposition. I think this is what Informa is trying to do. Informa has recently gathered together all of its different high-technology research brands. So Overm and IHS Market Technology and Tractica and Heavy Reading, and it's brought them all together in a new brand, Omdia, with what looks like a, a different business model, something rather similar to the heavy reading business model. And then the third opportunity, of course, is niche. You know, that, that organizations can define themselves more clearly, can really sharpen their focus, can try to develop more insights than Gartner could have in a defined and defensible market position. These are the strategies that I see analyst firms trying to, trying to follow. And it all comes down to execution more than ever before. And unfortunately, the quality of analyst insight is secondary because it's the ability of these analyst firms to diffuse what they're saying through direct sales, through content marketing, through selling licensing. It's the ability of these firms to diffuse their insight, which is becoming more crucial than the quality of the insight itself. It's interesting how it's such a dynamic market and the big players and the smaller players basically play on the same field. I think it's absolutely true. Partly it's because analyst insight is heavily qualitative and rich. And so it means that an analyst at a small firm and an analyst at a big firm really can be on quite a level playing field. And if you have a niche analyst firm with a focused sales team that is able to reach out to the people who find their insight valuable, then they can compete with the big firms. And, and actually, a, a great example of that that I'm very close to at the moment is the financial technology industry. And what I've seen there is that there are organizations like, like ITE and Salent, relatively small analyst firms, you know, dozens of people rather than hundreds of analysts or thousands of analysts. But they are really able to compete seriously in selling to certain parts of of that market. They can be taken more seriously in terms of their insight because of very close focused relationships that they have in that market. But even there, they struggle to, to gain the price premium that the smaller firms can do. And it's much harder for them to generate demand for their services. They have to sell over the heads of the giant firms that many people know straight away. And that dynamism means that mid-sized and small firms can compete, but they have to do something dramatically different if they want to be able to really turn the readership that they have into premium pricing and the kind of profitability that is needed to invest in an excellent sales and marketing machine. I saw you recently posted about your Twitter anniversary. Um, Congratulations on that, by the way. And you use the occasion to link to your manifesto on analyst relations. Can we go through two of them? I'd like to focus on AR should be cooperative and AR is the marketing of ideas to analysts. Can you tell me about both of those? Yes. There's an American election. I can't remember what it is. Maybe it's the first time FDR (laughs) was elected. There's this diagram, you know, two mules who are fastened together at the bride. In the one cartoon, they are pulling apart. And in the other, they've joined together and they are eating from a big pile of hay, looking happy. 
So I think that visually is a really powerful metaphor for the very different stances that organizations can take in relationships between analyst firms and between the vendor community. And obviously, analysts reasonably have to be skeptical of some claims by vendors. I used to be an analyst, and it was my experience, not only that I was maliciously misinformed, misdirected, misled by vendors. As an analyst, it was my experience that sometimes vendors would mislead me simply by misunderstanding what their own technologies did or or misunderstanding basic laws of of physics. That can partly explain some of the skepticism, uh, concerns that analysts have. But actually, and to be fair, the bigger problem is on our side of the table. It's on the supply side of the industry. It's with vendors and with network operators. We are much more suspicious of analysts than we should be, much more fearful of them than we should be. And we are much more critical and suspicious of low ethical standards in the analyst industry, when actually the supply side of the industry is just as rapacious, maybe even worse behaved than the analyst firms are. So when I say that we need to be cooperative, I really mean that. And I really mean that it means a win-win attitude where we start not from simply the conversation that we're engaged in, but from each other's interests. As an analyst, analysts want to diffuse their ideas. They want to test their ideas. They want to improve their ideas. And all of those things, vendors should have a stake in. And when we meet analysts, one of the things that is so important is to start from a basis of of, a fact from a basis of understanding the real trends in the market and of aiming to deliver value to analysts, that really contributes towards them and their research priorities. It's one of the interesting experiences that I have here at CC Group, the PR, is I'm in the lucky situation, not just to be an isolated analyst relations practitioner, but to be part of a team and to be part of a team that has got access to lots and lots of very rich experiences and Often we're able to interact with the same analysts on behalf of multiple clients. But it means that we're able to really get a better idea of what the problems are that analysts are are addressing in their research, of the direction of their questions and queries and skepticisms. And it means that we're able to curate conversations with analysts that start from what those analysts are worried about rather than starting from what our customers are providing. Obviously, that is bound to come up in the conversation. It's an unavoidable part of, the, of an analyst speaking to a vendor, that the analyst is going to be interested in finding about the company and its customers and about the offer that it's bringing to market, how it goes to market. But actually, the conversation has to be about the problem, the problem that the analyst is trying to help their customers to solve. And we help our customers, our clients, the vendors that we're working with, to speak to analysts as if... The enterprises and operators that they are helping are the heroes of this story. They are the common audience that we and the analysts are both trying to help. And what we should be trying to get analysts to do is to be able to accurately put us in the particular sweet spot in the market where we can operate and not try to pretend that we can fit in everywhere. That's what I mean by cooperation. And I must admit, it is extremely hard sometimes to convince vendors and operators to take that approach. 
Now, many of them have only met salespeople from analyst firms. They haven't met real analysts. Maybe they've had very bad experiences with people from sales teams and analyst firms. Maybe they think the analyst industry is a pay-to-play industry. And very often they think that there's no way that they can get a fair hearing. And the reality is I'm amazed by how very fair a hearing even small firms can get from very large analyst firms. One of the experiences that we've had here in our team at CC Group, so almost all of us are new in the team since 2018. And one of the things that we've deliberately tried to do for our clients is push them away from smaller firms towards larger firms that are more likely to have relationships with their end customers. And we found that the big analyst firms that many of our clients are skeptical about speaking to are really open-minded. So the more that we can talk about cooperation, the more that we will help clients to realize that actually they're not locked out from speaking to the analyst. It's an open door. They just need our help to work out where the door handles. There was another one of the credo points that you were asking me about. Yeah, AR is the marketing of ideas to analysts. And having worked at an analyst firm myself and worked with a number of analyst firms as a consultant over the years, I've always thought that the analysts' brains are marketed using reports and research notes and so forth. I hadn't thought of it as the other way around. It obviously makes a lot of sense. It actually doesn't make a lot of sense to many people. And that's why it's been one of these foundational points. I mean, actually, these credo points that I wrote up a dozen years ago have actually been ideas that I developed much earlier when I was working at Deloitte, which I think would have been, what, 2003, something like that. It's one of the things that, that I often see is that people are so focused on getting mentions in reports that they will prioritize a dozen analysts who aren't very important, who happen to be writing something in the next few months, or who announce what they're writing in the next few months. And sadly, they will ignore much more influential analysts who don't publish their research agenda or aren't interested in sharing with everybody what their research agenda is. They might only share it with customers and you might not have that insight. You might not have that intelligence. There's a lovely article that my colleague Elena Georgieva has written on the CC Group blog where she talks about this idea of using research calendars to plan your analyst relations program. So a minority of analyst firms are able to publish in advance calendars of the content that they will be publishing. Not everybody can keep to those intentions, of course, but it's really nice to publish them. But very few people do that. Most analysts don't do that and don't, don't want to do that. What Elena has seen, and I've seen it for longer than her, but maybe it's more worrying for her, what we see is that organizations are massively distorting the way in which they are prioritizing analysts, the cadence with which they are speaking to analysts, the way that they focus their conversations with analysts, because they're just saying, hey, you're writing a report about this. We want to be in it. This is like somebody who wants to be married looking for wedding announcements in the local newspaper and then approaching brides and approaching other people's fiancés and saying, hey, I've seen that you're interested in getting married. What a great coincidence. I'm also interested in getting married. One of the hardest things for us to communicate is that often by the time the analyst has announced that they're starting to write that research, the basic outline of it is already there. 
And the clearest example of this is in the biggest pieces of research, you know, in the Forrester Waves and in the Magic Quadrants. The best time to speak to the analyst is not when they've announced that they are starting the research. The best time to speak to them is when they've just finished it. They've got nine months, 10 months, 11 months to think about the next quadrant. That's the best time to reach out to those people. So there's a double problem with focusing on reports rather than ideas. You know, firstly, it focuses you on a small amount of two people who publish research. And secondly, you're trying to start the conversation at the end with people who have almost certainly already got their conclusions when you should have been speaking to either different people or to the same people at a different time. And what's fantastic for us is that it means that we are not competing with those organizations that misunderstand timing and that misunderstand focus. So again, it really surprises me how we're very often able to work with clients to help them to reset their expectations, to kind of switch from a black and white view into a color view, and certainly to get a very different way of understanding how to prioritize and plan their analyst relations. And again, it means that often we find ourselves pushing against an open door, speaking to analysts that we've been able to identify earlier on in their research process, where we can make a much more impact in a one-hour cup of coffee chat 11 months before the Magic Quadrant comes out than somebody else can make in 100 hours of rowing over weightings on spreadsheets after the Quadrant process is already at a high tempo. Yeah, preparation and consistency may be the words that are really important there. Absolutely. I think the ability to plan out the year And to resist temptation is really important. And it's one thing that I really appreciate working with clients is that that has to reflect their own organizational culture. Sometimes we're working with organizations that have got a very traditional, recognizably a 20th century engineering culture. In some senses, a 19th century tailorist quality management, control feedback loop kind of approach. And with these more mature clients, with a more stable internal culture, it's very easy to say, we're going to make a plan, we're going to set objectives, we're going to have this cadence, we're going to need your spokespeople this far in advance. With more mature companies, it's easier to have that conversation. And I think that's part of the reason why it's larger companies that are more successful at analyst relations. One of the challenges that we have, very often we are working with early stage firms, firms that are looking for their next round of private equity, or they may be looking quickly to go through to an M&A event or an exit, is that those organizations might be in the habit of zigzagging quite dramatically, not just in their marketing communications, but even zigzagging quite dramatically in the way that they're taking their product to market. And that predisposition to do firefighting and that high tempo can make it harder for early stage firms to do the planning. And to be honest, that's part of the reason why they benefit from using an agency like ours, which is itself you know, a relatively old, mature, stable agency that, that has that experience and, and has those methods that we can provide that kind of planning infrastructure and that more strategic, medium-term orientation that can support organizations, structure organizations, and allow them to make the most of this opportunity that is in front of them, rather than reacting all the time, permanently being on the back foot, permanently scrambling to respond to things that they've identified 
or to, even worse, of course, reacting to reports that have already been published. When a manager comes in and says, look, Duncan and his dog wrote a report about our technology and he didn't mention our company, someone has to be brave enough to say, well, this is Duncan and his dog. We don't have to be that concerned about one person and a small canine who may be writing reports for no audience at all. Let's keep our eyes up on the horizon. Let's focus on the big picture. Different client organizations have got very different dispositions, which means that that can be a really challenging demand for them, or it can be something that is very easy for them. And the way that we win that argument in either situation is by making the point that it has to be about ideas. We have to help customers not just talk about their offer, but talk about the different mind view, the different understanding of what is happening in the market, the ideas and values, the narrative, the myth, maybe. But what is that basket of ideas that is guiding the strategy of the organization? That is the level on which you can really excite analysts and win conversations. And if you start at the bottom of the pyramid, simply with proof points about incremental improvements that you've been able to make, you'll only ever be a point player and never really be a useful thought leader that is able to demonstrate the way that a whole market is moving. That's great advice, I think. It's hard for some people to follow it. It bears repeating. I want to have you back on every six months to repeat that message, I think. To be fair, it's not a problem that is specific to analyst relations. It's definitely not a problem that is specific to marketing. In a certain sense, it's one of the existential pains of humanity. We are animals that are hugely alert. We've survived by being very responsive to our environments. But human progress is only measured by our ability to have visions when we understand strategically where we want to move. If we have setbacks, if we have defeats, you know, sometimes you'll make good decisions and still have bad outcomes. But really what makes us different is our ability to push ahead in an intelligent way towards goals that we set ourselves and not only to respond to the circumstances around us. And I think that when you think of that wonderful book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, his first point is start with the end in mind. And I think organizations have to proceed in the same way as individuals. They have to understand their value. They have to understand their mission. They have to understand what it is they are trying to create. And it seems extremely difficult for small organizations, mid-sized organizations, to imagine that they have the right to have that conceit. And maybe this vision, this narrative, this strategy is something which is augmented, amplified, which initially is, is only present in an incremental form. But if we understand what is the way that we want to contribute to the world, what is the value that we are bringing, then we can help analysts to lift up their own understanding of what are the long-term opportunities for their market. Earlier on, I was talking about financial technology. One of the things that, that I see an awful lot of, in fact, it's, a, it's an area that I've been following for, for about 20 years, is the use of artificial intelligence to support changes in credit technology. So this is my background, actually back in the 1990s, developing machine learning and data mining 
models that would help with fraud assessment and with credit checking. One of the big stories that is being lost there is financial inclusion. I saw some lovely research from Oxford Economics explaining how in the Western world, of course, we think that everyone's got a credit score and everybody is being tracked by a credit bureau. But in the majority world, in that kind of, you know, bulge in the middle of the world's population, developed countries where people are earning some serious money, they're in the situation where they could be benefiting from, from credit. Actually, the vast majority of the population in those countries has no credit score, is not being tracked by any kind of credit bureau. And that is a massive opportunity. It's about financial inclusion and huge opportunities for improving the quality of people's lives by micro-lending to individuals, by micro-lending to their small businesses. I don't hear a really commanding narrative about financial inclusion coming from companies who are involved in credit technology. But that is the level of the conversation that I think you have to be at if you really want to excite analysts and if you want them to be able to have different conversations with customers. There's one level where a customer will come to the analyst and will say, I've got this problem, help me fix it. And the analyst will say, okay, you need a spanner. I've spoken to some people who are selling spanners. The spanner that is most like the one that you seem to be describing is this one. If you're able to get up to the level of marketing ideas to analysts, the analyst is going to say, but there's something that I should be speaking to you, which is about the future of your market or about different scenarios of market development, which are going to transform the way that you need to act now in order to anticipate the risk that one scenario rather than another scenario will mature more quickly. It's that battle of ideas that really only the very, very largest firms and the very, very smallest firms are often winning at. And many companies in the middle are a little bit, you know, they're so wrapped up in their own solutions, in the timelines for their own products in their own tempo, in their own newsfeed, that it can be hard, awkward, sometimes even embarrassing to raise the conversation up to the level of pure ideas, even for two, three, four minutes out of an hour. But when I see firms that can do that, I see what a transformation that it makes and how it helps those companies to be seen by analysts as being organizations that are really aware of their environment, that really have a mission that are going to have a better chance of executing because they've got a better idea of what it is they're executing to achieve. Duncan, to wrap up, I want to talk about the world a little bit and the market gyrations we're in the middle of right now. We are recording on March 3rd, and this will be out within the next couple of weeks, I would think. And we've seen the market go down considerably last week and back up again yesterday and looks like it's down again today. We've got an election here in the U.S. We've got the COVID-19 virus seemingly becoming a pandemic. We've had big conferences like Mobile World Congress canceled. I know people who were out at the RSA conference last week and it was maybe attended by 50% of the people who registered. It was very low attendance. I saw Google has a conference that they're going to do online. Facebook has canceled its conference. How should influencers in this kind of online and offline world approach this uncertainty? I think we have personal challenges, and then I think we have organizational challenges. I was reading LinkedIn yesterday, 
And I saw one of the analysts that I was following mentioned that he had cashed in everything and had gotten out of the stock market. And actually, I think I'm 51. I think if you're my age or if you're older, I think this is a really good time to get out of the stock market. That's also, in a way, a good way of describing the organizational challenges that we have in the years ahead. We're looking at direct and indirect consequences of the virus. We're in very early days. I'm sure that in different parts of the world, there are many different strategies that are being used to respond to the virus. But I think we can see that the technology industry is probably reacting more quickly and more aggressively than many national governments are able to do. The cancellation and the scaling down of events, the minimization of attendance at these events right now, when it's clear that we have tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of untested people who may be unaware that they are carrying the virus and who will probably each infect five or six other people. I think that is a really significant framework that I think organizations have to have. I work for a really small company. We've got a few dozen people here in London, half a dozen in the United States. But actually, we we already have our contingency plans in place. We have taken an, an audit of the home situation of all of our people. We've made sure that people have got laptops at home so that if they log on in the morning and see that travel has been obstructed in some way or is unsafe in some way in their cities that they can work from home. There are other measures that we don't have to go into. But I think every organization has to be going through that kind of process. And all of that decelerates. All of that has a conservatizing effect. We saw that in a very different way after the impact of 9-11, that 9-11 had a massive short-term effect, but actually it had a long-term effect which massively affected corporate travel policies all around the world. 20 years ago, I used to run analyst relations training events and people would fly thousands of miles to attend training events. Now people don't do that. I think we're also going to see an economic impact, again, both direct and and indirect. Mobile World Congress was a huge thing for many of our uh, clients. We had hundreds of meetings scheduled at Mobile World Congress. and There will have been tens of thousands of meetings, which will have been very important. They will have been meetings where telecoms operators, desperate to find new ways to monetize their 5G investments, will have missed out on finding ways to make that happen. Analysts hungry to find new solutions that can help their companies to solve their enterprise communications challenges. They will have been inhibited. A massive amount of value is destroyed by all of these events that don't happen. Every cloud has a silver lining. I'm a Zoom customer. I'm very happy to see that Zoom has added more customers in the last several weeks than in all of the preceding year. That really is a silver line to a very dark cloud where we will see a huge stock market softness. We will unfortunately see more death and the disruption and deceleration of supply chains. I really think that we are still not really able to understand what the implications will be. But for marketers, it means trying to overcome these obstacles. So it means putting more emphasis on webinars. CC Group is a great example of that. We're a 35-year-old company. We've never run webinars in our 35 years. And now you know, we're running regular 
webinars every few weeks. I'll put a word in for podcasts too. Definitely. I think we're seeing people consuming information in different ways. They're looking for substitutes. Podcasts have the great, especially discussions. I think discussions, conversations, they allow you to re-examine issues and they allow conversations like this, relatively unscripted conversations that could go in any way where unexpected insights that maybe you would not hear in a heavily prepared presentation at Mobile World Congress would come up. The implications are really significant for us. And although there are some things we can't predict and can't anticipate, I do think we have a job now to understand. We have to start filling the gap and investing much more heavily in the kind of content marketing and lead qualification processes on a scale unknown before. It's certainly something that we see. Many of our clients see we're turning more into content marketing and into generating media to generate leads. The problem for us is how to assess quickly all of these leads, these extra leads that come in. Obviously, it's a good thing to have more leads rather than fewer leads. I'm very grateful for that. But organizations can actually be overwhelmed unless they have the right techniques to be able to to help filter, funnel, assess, prioritize the people who are engaging in their content. That's great, Duncan. Boy, always a pleasure to have you on, and uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. My pleasure, Mark. You always ask me the very best questions. I'm super impressed that you picked up on these points about the credo, but the situation that we're in now means more than ever before, marketing professionals have to really focus on their visions and their goals because we are in for stormy seas. And without keeping our eye on the North Star, we can very easily lose track of where we are being moved by the winds. Well, thank you so much, Duncan. My pleasure. Thank you. All right. Next time, former CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi, Kevin Roberts on Love Marks. So stay tuned. Confessions of a Marketer is a trademark of Podco Media Networks, and this episode is copyright 2020. I'm Mark Reed Edwards. See you next time. tried to eyeball six feet as often as you do now. You wear a mask, you wash your hands, and you've stayed within the walls of your apartment for more hours than you care to add up. But unless you live in a smoke-free building, you're not exactly home-free. Secondhand smoke drifting through the cracks in walls or sink drains carries toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. And right now, lung health is key. Go to tobaccofreeca.com to learn how to stay safe.